This episode of The Homilist is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. For over 75 years, Ozark Christian College has been preparing students for ministry. Ozark's 15,000 alumni are serving in all 50 states and in 100 countries around the world, carrying the gospel to every part of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. For more on Ozark's residential and online degrees, visit OCC.edu. Welcome to The Homilist Podcast with me, Jared Ellis. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Homeless Podcast is intended to encourage, educate, and hopefully, somewhere along the way, entertain you. If you want to know more about The Homeless Podcast and gain access to exclusive content, go to thehomeless.com. And now for my visit with the steely stoic and all-around stud, Aaron Brockett, lead minister at Traders Point Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. I read this, uh, I read this article, Indianapolis Monthly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, are you familiar with the one I'm talking about? Uh, April? The one they had like the uh, double wide trailer hall and the white church in the, down, in the downtown. <laughs> my favorite line, my favorite line from the whole thing. Church leaders at TPCC insist they have no concrete plan or target objectives for the larger expansion. And that is God, and that God is guiding the process. As leaps of faith go, 4.9 million is a big one, especially when the intention is to fly in the face of accepted wisdom. The rewards for a megachurch that could tap into the state's largest market would be huge, though. The meek may inherit the earth, but downtown Indy is up for grabs. <laughs> <laughs> downtown Indy's up for grabs. I loved it. That's a good one. Yeah, a- she, man, she was trying her best. We met with her several times, and she was trying her absolute best to find dirt on us. And, man, she was just... Uh, it's interesting though because that was two years ago and it's worked. And yeah, there's been no follow up article, so yeah. and how that goes. But yeah, there's a uh, there's a sense there's a sense when when somebody comes in and they begin to oh yeah you're doing something new are you doing something is it going to be good is it going to be big yeah right is it going to suck watch that you know there's that and that's uh that's kind of a tough deal that's kind of a tough deal yeah um so. You're on this list. Let's talk about this obvious thing. You're on this list of, of uh, the fastest growing church in the U.S. Is there yeah. any, sort of, any sort of panic that ever just hits <laughs> you from time to time? It's like, <laughs> oh, gosh, what, oh, what if I dropped the ball? You know, anything like this? Nah, you know, no, not really. I mean, you know, there, there's kind of a running joke with that list. It's like the outreach 100 fastest growing and right. it's like running joke. It's like, well, who reads that? Well, about a hundred people. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's right. just, you know, it kind of is what it is. I, I don't even know how we get on there. I think that, um, I think we've been on it a few times, but they end up contacting like our communications department and just asking us about our growth rate. We tell them and then they tell us, Hey, you know, congratulations. You guys are the 52nd fastest growing church or whatever. And right. that's kind of get on it. And honestly, like it's to the point now where it's just like, well, that's nice, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I know that there's churches that are should be on that list, but they're not because they don't report their numbers or whatever. So it's right. sort of what it is. In my mind, I just kind of frame it up to, uh, hey, what's God doing around the world? And I kind of like to browse through the list and just become familiar with churches, especially churches that are not in our circle. Yeah. Uh, hey, man, how's God working uh, in those churches and what can we learn from them? But, you know, uh, it's one of those things where I don't think we need to clearly get a big head about it, nor panic, because it, it just is what it is. So, yeah. 
I talked to a guy. I talked to a guy not too long ago, and uh, younger guy, and he, he made the comment. Well, you know, in ministry, in ministry, uh, he said the thing for me is he said I just really have to work hard on not becoming prideful, you know. And I thought you should spend a little bit more time with the bride of Christ. It, it won't take long at all, you know. I mean, <laughs> That's right. It doesn't even become a checks and balances thing anymore. It's a, you know, am I being too cocky? No, listen, if you're working with the church, it's really hard to get a big head, you know. I mean, it's really hard, oh, yeah. really hard out there. So, Well, the, the thing that comes with those numbers is just bigger problems and more headaches. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I sit down uh, every year with uh, pastors of churches over 5,000. We get together every September and you just go around the table and just the list of problems is a mile long, man. I mean, uh, the amount of stress and the load that comes with all that. So bigger is certainly not sexier. Yeah. Yeah. It looks that it looks that way from the outside. It's kind of like um, you go to the gym and you see some guy and he's really, really fit. You know, and he's just all chiseled up. And you say to him, you say, so, uh, so what's your diet, bro? Like, I got to know, like, what's your diet? And he, they, all of them lie. They all lie. He'll be like, you know, really, it's really not that good. My diet's really not that good. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. then you see a great big fat guy at the gym and he's over there sweating to death on the treadmill. Hey fella, how's your diet? He's like, you know, it's really not that bad. It's really not that bad. You know, it's kind of the same idea. You know, there's the. You get somebody who – look, for for you where you are doing what you do in your place, like to you, this is probably very much just a norm. Like anybody wakes up and does this thing and and has to manage campuses or has to manage more staff. But you take a rural guy, his norm is completely different. He's going to wake up. He's going to fix the drain. He's going to go drive the school bus. And he's going to work on his sermon on Thursday, you know, yeah. Yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the thing that helps me, too, is that I've not always been in this context. I mean, my uh, when, when I was at Ozark, I, my preaching point on the weekends was a church of 15 people. Wow. The highest attendance ever in that four years that I was there was like 25 people, and that was because it was Christmas and they had family come into town. Mm-hmm. And, and from there, um, when I was in seminary, I preached at a church in southern Illinois of 180 people, and then planted a church in California. I was there five years. It grew to a whopping 125. So I, I, I understand that context. Um, and so I, I even had like, I mean, all 11 years that we've been here, the church has grown. And I've actually had people come up to me who knew me during my church planning years and said, Hey man, what are you doing different now than what you uh, then? And yeah. I was just like, well, not, well, yes, there's some things I'm doing different that come from, from just my own personal growth. But it's not like I said, man, I was doing it all wrong, and I found this equation, or I read a book, and then I just right. told all my leadership, and bam, uh, we got all. I'm really thankful for those years because even now, like, I just don't want to get too high with the highs and too low with the lows. And there's so many factors that come into numerical growth that none of us have control over. You know, do, what's the density of your population? What, where's your church located? How are your systems? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. It's not just, I think we'd all like to think, well, man, I'm preaching better sermons and so all these people show up. And that's like, no, that's, that's right. not it. So I think just not taking yourself too seriously. Uh, so that way, when, and honestly, like even now, I mean, a good weekend for us will be 10,000 people. We drop below 8,000, which is entirely possible to do. Like you, the swings get bigger. 
the stuff in my heart is the exact same thing than when I was preaching in a church of 15 people. Good for you. 15 people and eight people showed up. I was having a bad week after that. Uh, I'm preaching in a church of 10,000 and less than 8,000 show up. I'm having a bad week. The heart's still the heart. It doesn't matter if all these, who's showing up on the weekend. And I think it was just very helpful for me to realize that and to recognize it. We all work in different parts of the vineyard. Um, and uh, I have no idea why God brings the increase or, or the opposite. Um, but uh, it's not, it's certainly not because of my giftedness or, your gift or our weaknesses or strengths. I know that. So, uh, so you had these people come in, they're just like, you know, Brockett used to give us all that secondhand, those hand-me-down sermons he got from his grandpa or whatever he got. Him. <laughs> and now he went to the big city and he put on his big city preaching. And so that's, it's not that bad then. <laughs> that's good. But that, believe, that brings me to a question. Um, the idea of, and this is my own thought. I'm curious about anybody else's opinion on this. Being called to the vocation, um, are we also called to the location, to the places that we go? There's a certain kind of fabric that maybe fits you and fits you well, and you kind of found maybe you even found a little bit, a little bit more, um, uh, a better perspective, better, a clearer picture of who you are in in that place, or you connect well with these people, and that was kind of unexpected. Um, is that a is that too 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 out there? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the question's nuanced. I mean, I think that uh, I think your people can sense uh, where your heart is. So, you know, um, I've never had I never saw myself living in Indiana. I always wanted to live in Southern California. In fact, like I tried really hard for probably about a decade to find a ministry in Southern California. And it just never worked it was like god just kept keeping the doors closed um and i never saw myself in indiana and i tried not to i said no to coming here and it and this is where we ended up being and yet since i as soon as i moved here i just felt this sense of like peace that this is where god had called us to and i've had no desire to to leave indiana now during the winter uh i sometimes wonder you know uh, why God has us here. It's brutal. Um, but, um, I love what he's doing in the city. I developed a real heart for the city. And I've even said publicly up front, like I really want to live out the rest of my days here. Um, and yet still very open, you know, if God decided to redirect us, I guess what I'm saying is, is that wherever you happen to be now, whether it's six months or 60 years, um, be fully present. I think that's just more important than anything. It's like, would God, could God move you on from another location? Uh, yeah, he does it all the time. He did it in the New Testament. Uh, but while you're in a location, don't be looking out ahead that you actually miss not only what God wants to do through you there, uh, but how God wants to develop you through that assi- particular assignment. And, uh, you know, I think if your people can, your people will sense whether or not you're uh, grazing in other fields or looking, you know, to other locations. Uh, it's just so important, I think, to to be planted where we're planted until he moves. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys, and I'm sure you had them from. When did you graduate? When did you graduate Ozark? Ninety-eight. Okay. Um, I, I graduated in two thousand four. Um, but I came. I was in other places prior to that. I was off 
gallivanting across the country doing other things. And when when I got there and you know you graduate school, a lot of guys went into ministry and then like two years later they were gone and then two years later they were at the next place and two years later the next place. You know, and even even up to now, I mean guys I know that you know they're probably on like the tenth place maybe. Yeah. You know, just on the go all the time. And I, and I'm not I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm not sure that it's I'm not suggesting that it's bad necessarily. Um but it seems as it's it seems like it would be very hard to commit and form relationships um, to carry out. I mean, it, it seems, uh, I don't know. What, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it goes to uh, motivation of the heart. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't know about you, but right out of Ozark, uh, I remember the day I graduated, like, oh, crap, what now? Like, where do I, now, where do I go next? Right. And you know, we didn't necessarily have, you know, multi-site campuses didn't exist. Church planting wasn't even really that much of a thing at that particular time. Uh, you either went on the mission field, you became a youth pastor, or you preached in a small church, or you got a position on staff at one of the bigger churches, which there wasn't that many bigger churches then. So so that just it wasn't much. We were really talented, great preachers, love the Lord, who within the first five to 10 years out of Ozark, uh, got eaten up in just unhealthy situations. And it's kind of like, like when you graduate, you sort of like go, Hey, I'll take whatever's open. Cause yeah. I'm going to get in there. And it's sort of like, you know, the sea turtles all running into the, into the sea, you know, are they going to get snatched up? Are they going to get taken? I mean, I look back on all that. I wouldn't wish that on my son for anything. Yeah. And I'm grateful that I survived a lot of it, uh, because there were some unhealthy, situations in my first couple of years of ministry and I just didn't have the wisdom to deal with it. And so there's that aspect of it where you know you get into a place and you serve and then you begin to figure out what your calling practically looks more like and then you go to a different place or God opens up another opportunity. I think there's that. There's a very different thing though whenever you're using a ministry as a stepping stone to go on to something bigger and better. And I think we have to be careful about that. I think just the motivations of your heart are um really uh crucial and if you're always looking for the great it's kind of like you know relationships you know you can uh fertilize your lawn or you can you know be looking somewhere else and i think that uh guys who are constantly jumping from one ministry to the next um they gotta ask themselves why are they running from problems because there's problems in any ministry people issues and so I, I'm, I'm a little bit fearful of guys who are constantly popcorning around because have they ever really stayed long enough to really work through conflict in such a way that's then helping them to mature as a leader? Um, and, and you know, statistically, in a lot of ministries, I think, I forget where I read this, but it was like uh, pastors produce more fruit in their ministries after year 10 uh, at the age of 40 or up. Like, you know, if you can hang in there and go through the ups and the downs and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in a sweet spot right now here because I'm in my 11th year, I'm 42 and there are just some things that I can get away with now that I couldn't have gotten away with eight, nine, 10 years ago. And I, and by getting away, I'm not talking about anything unethical or immoral. I'm just saying 
but it just comes with like a leadership sort of clout and an experience. And I've earned people's trust. Whereas you just got to hang in there long enough to, to do that. And um, I'm always just a little bit fearful when pastors leave and they're running, they're just, they're just leaving their mess for somebody else to try to clean up. Yeah. And that didn't, that didn't help the kingdom of God at all. Yeah, I agree. That's a, it's a scary, I think that's a good insight. Are they running from their inability to, um, you know, deal with conflict to uh, maybe they've run completely out of, you know, everything that they're willing to share of themselves and not, yeah. not willing to cross that threshold of, you know, relationships cost, you know, yeah. and there's a, there's a certain amount of pain that comes to great relationships yeah. you know, that you, you end up giving more of you. Um, and when I say pain uh, in great relationships, I just mean that great relationships oftentimes come with a certain amount of, you know, struggle and uh, to yeah. get. And I think with a the congregation, there is this very, this is a very strange relationship between a, a preacher and the person who hears him speak weekly. That there's a trust that forms. There's a probably not much different, maybe maybe a little different, but probably not much different than the way you know some people feel about certain celebrities who you know they've watched him all the way through you know ten seasons of Friends you know or Seinfeld you know the the idea that like I know this person I'm, and I. And then they pull the ep- they pulled the show and, and, and it's gone. It's like, wow, it's like I lost my family. You know, that kind yeah. of mentality. Yeah. You know? And I think I, it Go ahead. I, I can remember in my very first ministry is a church of 180 people in a town of nine hundred in southern Illinois. And I remember I came in, I was twenty three years old and I was trying to uh, change something. I don't remember even what it was, but I remember there was a group of older people that were against it. And in sitting down to listen to them, I remember there was one lady in the room, she was a widow, and her insight really struck at the core of this, I think. She just looked at me and she said, Aaron, we love you, but why should we do what you say? You'll be gone in two years. Uh, And I remember thinking, ha, that's what they've gotten used to. Like these guys come in, maybe graduates or maybe not graduates, maybe they're just in there for two to three years and then they move on. And so the congregation has learned, well... Why should why should you take the steering wheel and drift us all the way over here into this other thing when you're not even going to be around? And she had a great point. It should cause, I think, all of us to sit there and say, I've even coached guys before that are talking to me about, you know, maybe changing their systems or changing their worship services or whatever. And I always ask, how long are you going to be there? Because if you honestly can't tell me that you're going to be here more than five years, don't do it. Like, just love those people and serve them faithfully. But uh, like when I got to Trader's Point, there was all kinds of things that needed to be changed. I waited like 18 months to do any sort of significant change um, because I just needed to learn the culture, learn the city. Uh, I didn't want to cast vision in the wrong direction. And I needed to make sure, is this is this someplace that I feel like God's called me to long term? Within that first year, I knew that it was. And so I was able to have the courage and the conviction to be able to make some decisions that I knew would shake some people up. But I also knew that I'd be around long enough to walk them through it. Mm, that's smart. That's real smart. Um, it's almost like, uh, what do they call it? Reactive attachment disorder. Mm. Um, you know, people who've been abandoned over and over and over and over and over. Oh, yeah. Their ability to attach then becomes, I mean, almost impossible. You know, right. you take youth ministers, for instance. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the statistic is now, but the average youth ministry stay is like 18 months. Yeah. You know? And they're gone. They send them packing, and the new kid, the new guy shows up, 
he's just got to have you know skinnier jeans and a cooler flat bill or you know I mean what, whatever it is you got to listen to the right music and you yeah. know and, and maybe he can make an impact and we can milk that for all it's worth and then he'll be gone in 18 months you know it's kind of that that thought process yeah, yeah. that's a that's an insightful that's an insightful question uh, for guys that you're gonna you're gonna spend some time you know mentoring yeah uh, too yeah that's that's a good yeah. question you know, leadership, I, I was listening to Erwin um, McManus and his son Aaron have a podcast called Battle Ready, and I was listening to one of their last episodes uh, called uh, We Have No Succession Plan, because Erwin's 60, and I think his son's close to 30, and one of the big questions I get all the time is, hey, when are you going to hand this off to your son? And So they're, they're basically, their conversation is, hey, we have no succession plan, because we feel like... Um, that's more of like a kingly way to operate. We need to operate more like prophets. And so let's just serve in that. And, um, and, um, shoot, this thought just got scared out of me. Um, oh man. Well, you, you got me on pins and needles. It was a good one too, man. Well, pins and needles uh, here. The, this idea. What were we talking about? We were talking about, uh, we're talking about attractive, uh, uh, um, attachment, uh, reactive attachment disorder. And mentoring other guys, no succession plan, um, not going to stay in a place, telling people, are you going to be there at least five years? Yeah. Oh, I remember what it is. He, uh, he, because uh, he, here's the deal with like leaders. Le- leaders' job isn't to uh, be the smartest person in the room or to make all the right calls or to grow the church even. A leader is um, somebody who can develop and bring people along to, with the decision. So, Erwin was talking to his son, Aaron, and he has two kids, uh, a, a daughter and, and his son. And I guess the daughter, Mariah, is like more talented than Aaron. And all through growing up, he would say, Dad, what am, what's God going to do with me? Mariah's got all the talent. She can speak. She can sing, all that. And Erwin said that he would say to his son all the time, he would say, if God's given you tons of vision and not as much talent, then he's given you the gift of leadership. Are you or someone you know wanting to make a difference with your life? but you're not sure where to start? At Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, they help students discover the kingdom assignment that God has for them and then train them to carry it out. Ozark prepares students for all kinds of Christian service, biblical communication, biblical justice, youth and children's ministry, counseling, missions, organizational leadership, worship and creative arts, and much more. Ozark's close community, Bible foundation, and commitment to service prepare students to take the gospel to every corner of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. And Ozark's affordable tuition offers a quality private Christian education at a public university price. Ozark Christian College. Your mission is out there. Your training starts here. And so that really connected to me because I don't see myself as the most talented guy. There's lots of people that are way more talented than me. And I'm certainly not the smartest guy uh, in the room by any stretch of the imagination. But our job as leaders is to collaborate with people and bring them along. And I always get really nervous whenever there's leaders that just kind of jerk the steering wheel according to the latest fads and trends or because they just want to see the church grow uh, for whatever reason. And um, you've got to be able to sit down with a group of people that may be contrarian or may have a different point of view and cast a vision, hear them out and lead them to a place together. And you just can't do that in two years or less. It just takes a long time. And so I think it's uh, really important for us to, as, as leaders and as preachers, to really check our motives um, yeah. and to not leave causing more damage than, than necessary. 
Yeah. Do you have a group of guys around you um, that kind of uh, spend their time uh, maybe that you've invited in or maybe they've just taken the position of who run the checks and balances on Aaron Brockett? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How's it work? What you say? How does it work? Yeah, how's it work? Uh, so, uh, guys at different levels and different groups. I mean, uh, it for me, it's not just one group of guys. I've got to have different levels, and so obviously, my elders would play a, a role in that, but not the role. My executive team around me plays a part in that, but obviously, that's not the only group. Uh, but I've also got like a, a a life group within the church. These are guys that are not on staff. Uh, these are guys that are, uh, I'd say maybe half of them um, have been believers for more than a decade. The other half either aren't or they're brand new. Mm. Um, and so they're pretty <clears throat> green when it comes to ministry. And I actually get some of my best like counsel and feedback from those guys because they have no baggage or uh influence perspective from ministry people or Bible college. They just see it all through a very different lens. It's often very, very refreshing. Yeah. Um, and just being, and just being willing to be very vulnerable with those guys. Um, yeah, I think is really huge. And then I've got a group of guys outside of this place, whether it's we're touching base, we do a, an annual fly fishing trip in Montana where there's a group of about 12 to 15 of us that get together. We get very, very real around that time. Uh, and then we just invited in um, uh, tools and resources onto our team. Like I did an emotional intelligence 360 test about two years ago, which was brutal. And I basically had like two people from staff, two elders, all my executive team, and then two uh, lead pastors outside of our church that just know me uh, take this uh, anonymous uh, test on me uh, online, basically just measuring my emotional intelligence. And so it's just all raw and unfiltered. How do I affect, how does me, how do, uh, does Aaron Brockett and my leadership affect you? Uh, what's your perspective? What's your uh, observations about me? And uh, dude, when I read that report, the room started spinning because it was unfiltered. <laughs> They're not sitting in the room being nice to you across the, the, the table. And so periodic things like that, where I just need to get the unvarnished truth. So that way I can grow and it's not fun. Um, you know, most of us as leaders, we run from that kind of stuff because it's painful. What a stud, Brockett. You listen, you, and you're obviously aware of this, that, that, uh, that charming little grin of yours is going to get you some places, but it's not going to get you the truth in all situations. And so that's smart. That's smart. No, not at all. Yeah. yeah. The longer you've been in a place and the larger your church grows, then well, it doesn't even really matter the size of church. You just need to know as a leader and as a preacher, from most people in your life, you're not getting the full truth. Yeah. Because they're afraid of what you'll think of them. They're afraid of what you might do to them. You might fire them. You might ostracize them. They're starstruck because you're the guy on stage. And so you got to hunt it down. Like you've got to like. So good. You've got to like look them in the eyeball and say, hey, man, I need some feedback here. And one of the things we've just learned to say whenever we have a tough conversation as a team or even with my friends, we get done with a tough conversation. And I just look at them and say, man, thanks for sharing that. I know it's probably hard for you to say. Uh, is there any – are you leaving the last 10% on the table because you're afraid of what that last 10%, what that might do to our relationship or your job? And I'm giving you permission just to tell me just now. And – I would say most of the time there's something. 
there's always something that we just sort of like hold back. And, uh, and as a, as a leader, I've just had to learn that, um, with my team, I've got to pursue their feedback. They're not just going to willingly give it to me. And even if they did, they're probably not giving it all to me. So I've got to constantly reassure them that it's okay. That's the only way that I'm going to grow. And that's the only way we're going to grow as a group of people is if we're being honest with each other. Now, obviously, we need to say it with a great amount of sensitivity and grace. We don't want to crush people. Um, but uh, we do want to get to this place. It's like all of us are creating these like narratives in our brain. The question is, is the narrative accurate or not? So my interaction with you right now, I could, we could get done with this Skype call and I could go, and, you know, Jared kind of gave me this kind of weird look or he said something about my grin. And I really wonder, you know, kind of what Jared's really thinking about me. And did, did Jared, I wonder how I compared to, you know, Will Willimon's conversation. And, and was there, and I get all of these kind of things. And what I could do is just kind of, the longer I let those things ruminate, the, they have a tendency to drift towards the toxic. Always. Always. And that's true whenever you have meetings with people. That's true whenever you're dealing with your people that work for you. Uh, people that come in from your congregation to meet with you. And so if I were to then ask you about it, but I ask in an accu accusatory way, like, Hey, Jared, you know, you kind of said this and what do you mean by that? All of a sudden you're defensive <laughs> rather than me just going, Hey, Jared, like here's the narrative that I've started to spin in my brain about our interaction. Is there anything about that? That's true because help me understand it better. So way more, not that's a, uh, not nearly as uh intimidating posture to put you in. You don't feel like you're being attacked. And then we sort of get at the truth of some stuff. Um, because I believe that God wants the church to grow, not in the like sexy, glamorous ways that we often think, but God wants the church to have impact within the world because of the name that we proclaim. What oftentimes I think uh, causes the church not to grow more times than not, isn't because the gospel isn't effectively being preached or clarified, although that could be the case, uh, is uh, toxic human interaction and the way we treat each other, beginning with elders, staff, on down into groups with people. And so as leaders, we really hold the charge to make sure we get that right. How we interact and deal with people, it's got to be really healthy um, because we're not just telling people the gospel, we're actually showing them how the gospel works day to day in real life relationships. And uh, I believe that when God sees groups of people and churches doing that, he blesses them with growth and effectiveness. Um, maybe just not in the ways that we think. Um, but it's usually not found in a great sermon or a great program. It's found in the day-to-day -day interactions. It's like, I need to start thinking more about, I need to start thinking less about what do you think of me? And I need to start thinking more about how did I make you feel uh, from our interaction? And that's been a hard lesson that I've had to learn and that I continue to have to remind myself of. I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that's, uh, it's very, very transparent, uh, of you. We have a, we have a very similar conversation around here in, uh, our men's group. And one of the, one of the things that we refer to as all the way down to marriage, we begin to talk about marriage and it's this idea of filling in the blanks that everybody has a, Everybody has a role, like you and I have a role in this conversation. And for instance, if if I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, Brockett looks a little looks a little preoccupied. He looks like maybe I'm cutting into his his late lunch because you know whatever it, whatever it might be. 
it's not my responsibility or business to engage in what I think you might be thinking. Yeah. And what happens a lot of times, I get to I get to sit with a lot of a lot of married married couples, and oftentimes there is, like you said a minute ago, that narrative that we're piecing together bit by bit, and we will begin to fabricate some idea inside of our mind of like, well, if it's my wife and I, well, she must be feeling this way about me because, you know, I woke up this morning, I rushed out of the house. I always do the dishes, but I didn't do them this morning. I didn't take out the trash. And then she's a little standoffish in the afternoon. I bet she's pissed that I didn't do the dishes and she's probably pissed. That I didn't take out the garbage, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm filling in the blank. And so then that shades how I'm going to interact with her. We spent oh, yeah. so much- I'm on both sides of the – it's like the guy who plays chess by himself, constantly spinning the board, you know, trying to outmaneuver. It's a little dark, a little twisted, you know. Yeah, that's uh, – I think we all go to that place way too often. Absolutely. And, you know, you begin to figure this out in your interpersonal connections. It will make you a better preacher. Explain that to me. Uh well, emotional intelligence is huge when it comes to preaching because your people have to feel connected to you. Okay. I mean, you've got to be able to connect with where people are sitting in the seats. And I think that um, preaching is more than exposition. Preaching is more than teaching. Preaching is more than exhortation or all this stuff that we put to it, like all these ingredients that you're to say, hey, man, what makes a great sermon? And we could throw out all kinds of ingredients to make a great sermon. And it could be a good sermon. What makes it a great one is when you connect with people. When you just think about some of the best communicators and preachers that you know of, uh, some of them may be theologically brilliant. Some of them aren't. Um, even the, And they're not like heretics. They're, they're still solid in their belief, but they're just maybe not as gifted in uh, explaining a theological concept. But what makes them so great, or when you just really get wrapped into it, is when you just feel a connection to them. And I think that's where like emotional intelligence just comes into play. Um, I think for me, um, it's one thing for me to sit down and say, what's this passage say, and what's it mean, and how do I apply it? It's a whole other question to say, how, if I'm sitting in the seats, would I receive it? And what objections do I have? What questions do I have? Uh, here's the kicker. What questions would I have if I didn't have a Christian worldview? What questions would I have if I had a bad church experience? Yeah, uh, All those kinds of things. Uh, because then, and then it just even just acknowledging it up from up front, um, and it disarms people. And I think that um, one of the things that I, I love about when I know that a sermon is connected to somebody is when they just go, man, it just, you just feel so real to me. Mm. Uh, and I, and, or, or this is such a big place, but I feel like I know you. Uh, mm. I've never, I mean, we've half my church isn't even in the same room with me when I'm preaching a sermon. Half my church hasn't ever met me in person. They've just seen me on a screen, but I'll bump into them out around town. And they'll go, I've, I've never even been in the same room with you, but I feel like I know you. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with, like, I really explained a passage well. It has everything to do with, so, there was something that happened where I connected with them at an emotional level that let them know they're not alone. Somebody understands. You know, you kind of crawled into my brain and you sort of beat me to the objections. And what I love is that, uh, you know, it's that whole, like, I think it was a Spurgeon who said it. You don't need to defend the line, just let it out of the cage. 
Well, that doesn't necessarily mean the Bible's going to devour you. It just means that the, that the Bible uh, knows uh, how to, the Bible will connect with you. The Bible, you just got to let it do what it, it's going to do. And, uh, and so for me, I think I've grown as a preacher. Um, the more I've grown in my emotional intelligence and the more conflicts that I've had with people on staff and all that kind of stuff as we've sorted through it, it's just seeped itself out more and more in my preaching and teaching. It's been a gift. It's been a painful lesson to learn, but it's been a gift. Two questions. Um, well, let's go, let's go with, uh, what, what, uh, emotional intelligence test did you take? Excuse me. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. It was an outside consultant that did it for us. Uh, I can't. I can't remember offhand. I could. I could get it for you uh, later. But it was a consultant that led us through it. There's other ones, obviously, that you can take. Um, uh, I mean, there's like a whole battery of tests. I think that we're all kind of familiar with that can kind of help us to understand not only our giftedness but uh, where our personalities are wired. Um, but, uh, but that EQ thing, man, like. Being able to really figure out, I even pick up on it now. Like when I'm talking to people, um, I even had a conversation with my wife yesterday. I had I had somebody call me, and she goes, "How'd the phone call go?" And I go, "Well, it was it was good, but they're lacking a little bit of social awareness. Like yeah. just the they're, they're just not picking up on cues." Yeah. But uh, there's lots of uh, I think there's even several books. I have a couple on my shelf that talk about. Uh, yeah, it's right there. Uh, Your Brain at Work by David Rock. Um, Brain Savvy Leaders by Charles Stone. By Charles Stone. Um, obviously, the Emotionally Healthy Church um, would be a title that maybe a lot of people would be um, familiar with. Uh, introvert, extrovert. Uh, introvert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be my natural wiring. Um, uh, in the sense, like growing up, like, um, uh, everybody always told me I was shy. I didn't know what that was. Like it always confused me. Um, and then I took it as a criticism for a really, really long time. Um, cause I think people, uh, usually like when you're a kid growing up, like the way that people ask it is just like, you know, Hey, why don't you like people or why are you socially awkward or, right. you know, and all that. And I just, I didn't ever understand it. Girlfriends would break up with me all the time cause I wouldn't talk to them. And I just didn't understand. I didn't understand what that was all about. Right. Uh, so I think that, I mean, you know, and that definitely, I think hurt me as a younger leader. I mean, because I would come across unintentionally as sort of standoffish or, uh, people would tell me I'm hard to read. Uh, I'm more of a thinker, um, processor. My wife has helped me with all this tremendously. She's been such a gift. Um, she's an introvert as well, but she's a feeler. And she is a nine on the Enneagram, which means that she can really connect to what you're feeling as soon as she sits down with you for a few minutes. And uh, so she's been really, really helpful for me in that. But I'm still an introvert in the sense that I need time away to recharge but I love being around people. And so I've just learned how to prepare myself for when I'm going to be with people. And then, um, and I'm more aware of how I'm coming across, I think, than what I used to. So I can make adjustments. When you Sabbath, when you Sabbath, or when you take your day off, or when you try to get away from, to go recharge, um, is, this a, is this a thing you need to go do with your family, a thing you need to do Without your family, both. 
Yeah, both. I mean, I need, I mean, I, I think I need weekly time, like a, a, a day or a half day, um, uh, where I can sort of be away from the office and kind of be by myself just to process and think things through. Uh, but then I also need, uh, time with my family on a daily basis, really. I mean, evenings are so, um, crucial for us just to be able to sit, you know, to be together as a family, but then making sure that we are uh, planning uh, trips throughout the year that as a family, more than vacation time, but really just time for us to all get away and gotcha. interact with each other. Um, my wife and I, neither one, uh, we, we got married, I think, assuming that the other one would plan all the vacations and that didn't happen. And so we'd come up on spring break and look at each other, like, what are we going to do? And, you know, neither one of us had planned anything and it would cause an argument. And so now I've actually, um, with the help of like my assistant, she'll actually look at our year for us and say, Hey, here's the days when here's the times throughout your year when you guys typically get out on how do you want me to help? And so that's been huge for us to be, to look, have those moments to look forward to as a family. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Enneagram, it keeps coming up. I keep talking to people and they keep telling me I need to, I need to get it, read it, take it, um, yeah. do the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Need to. Yeah. It's a helpful tool. I mean, you know, there's some people that, uh, don't like it. Um, or it, there can be some weird stuff I think associated with it. Um, I think honestly, it's probably been the one personality profile tool that's helped, uh, Lindsay and I in our marriage the most out of anything. Um, so, uh, it's been very helpful. Our, our executive team has taken it. Our Lindsay and I've taken it. We've had our kids take it. So that way we kind of know where our kids kind of fall on it. And it's just a helpful grid. Um, cause each of the numbers, I think there's nine or there's, or I think there's nine numbers, nine personality profiles. Uh, but there's a healthy version of you and there's an unhealthy version of you. And, uh, and so to us just being able to, to have that as a reference point for conversation has been helpful. Yeah. yeah. I'll uh, get that on my list of things I obviously need to get done because <laughs> I, I hear it's great. I hear it's great. I got a buddy who called me and he said, you've got to get this. It's up your alley. It's perfect. You'll know yeah. so much about so many people. You won't stop. It'll just, and I said, listen, that's the last thing I need for my brain to <laughs> one more thing that it gets hung up on. That's the last thing I need, you know? Yeah. A so, lot of, a lot of, well, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it may not make a lot of sense to you, but a lot of preachers are threes on the Enneagram, so it's very okay. interesting. Can you explain what a three is? Just A three is a three is an achiever, so uh, uh, achieving things, uh, appearing successful, uh, having the respect and admiration of others, um, it's, uh, it's high value to a three. And all that stuff kind of sounds – in fact, I've talked to people that it doesn't matter where they are on the Enneagram. When they hear their number explained, just about everybody kind of cringes because they're like, Ugh, I don't want to be that. Um, but there's a healthy version of that and there's an unhealthy version of that. So what's really – I mean because I'm an introvert or even – I mean there's a lot of preachers that are introverts. But what motivates them to be on stage is the fact that there are three. And so there can be a, a healthy version of that and then an unhealthy version of it. So just understand, I can actually tell when I start to drift into being the an unhealthy version of a three, it's a, it's a moment for me to actually confess that to somebody, have somebody be willing to call that out of me and make sure I stay healthy with it. Good for you. Good yeah. for you. I like it. I like it. Um, 
Aaron, here's the deal. I got a lot of I got a lot of people around me who are who are busted up by the church because you know the bride of Christ. She's she's pretty, um, and and sometimes she's really really sweet, and then sometimes you know she she kind of goes bananas and you know she kicks somebody out. She throw them in the street. You know the, she can just kind of be a little. And, and I love her, and I love her, and and yeah. I love her because he loves her. Uh, yeah. But she's a little rough. She's a little rough on on folks like us sometimes. Um, with the number of guys that I get to spend time with, um, who hopefully I can get them, I can get them to sit down and and listen to this podcast or watch this podcast. What's the thing that you tell guys who are in that place to where they've been beat up by the church? Um, and, and, and maybe even to make this a little easier, what's a place? What's a place that you've been built back up? You've had some sort of um, some sort of healing moment with the church, or somebody brought this to you and helped you heal something, or helped you be healed of something inside of you know the struggle and the turmoil of ministry and some of the things that get there uh, that you could share with some of these guys. Yeah, you know. Um... I would say that there isn't anybody that is immune to it. Um, that if someone's particularly, if we're talking about uh, pastors, preachers, people on staff of the church, if that's who we're specifically talking to, um, then I would say that if you feel that way right now, or if you have felt that way, you're not alone. Um, I can't think of a single pastor uh, of any size church, and I'm talking like uh, pastors of churches of 40,000 people all the way down to four people, um, and every single one of them can tell you a story of how they've been hurt or beat up by the church or someone within the church. It's probably maybe a little bit more of an accurate way to say it. Um, now, obviously, you know, if you've got um, an eldership, that's over you that maybe has hurt you in some significant way. That might be a little bit of a different thing than just a critical email that comes in. I think those are pains at different, those are different kinds of pains. Cause I feel like if I've got my eldership and my immediate staff team around me, I can weather and my wife around me, I can weather just about anything. Um, I've always felt like, but if, if something got sideways with, my wife or with my uh, leadership team or my eldership, then that's a really, really bad day. Um, but I think that anytime I go through uh, highs and lows and, and they're here, I mean, I think that um, it doesn't matter what kind of season we're in. We're in a really sweet season in the life of our church right now where I feel like things are going really well. Uh, God's moving in tremendous ways, constant, uh, incredible stories continue to flow in. Uh, and yet, um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that in, on any given day, a hurt of some kind could reach me, whether it's through email or a conversation or whatever. Um, and they come in different kinds of ways. Sometimes it's because I just did something stupid. Um, so I deserve it. Sometimes it's somebody else is hurting and they don't know how to deal with it well. So they just take it out on you. Uh, sometimes it's misunderstanding and sometimes it's, um, I think the times when I've been hurt the most is when people who have 
uh, been on this journey with us over the last decade. They've watched what God has done and they leave the church. Mm. It's like, uh, and honestly, like the way that the, the reason why they leave the church isn't because we're right and they're wrong or they're right and we're wrong or, um, whatever. It's like, um, we've outgrown where they are, um, or we're in a different place maybe philosophically than where they are. And it, and it's fine. Uh, um, but it still hurts. I think at times because it's like, man, I believe in this vision so much. I believe for it. And they're sort of like, well, eh, you know, I'd rather go over here because for whatever reason, that just can knock the knock the wind out of your sails. Um, so I think that um, uh, if we think that we'll never be hurt by people, then we make ourselves more vulnerable to the hurts of people. I think we've always got to be. Um, I had a mentor of mine a long time ago. I don't think it's necessarily anything super original, although I just have to keep reminding myself of it. As he said, man, if you're going to survive, you've got to develop thick skin like a rhino and then you've got to develop the courage of a lion and then you got have to have the heart of a teddy bear um and you get those things confused and you come across like a lion uh then you're gonna uh, cause more hurt and pain uh, on your life um but uh um anyway I, I i always i think in those valley moments i'm always just asking myself man what can i learn from this because it's a season that's that's what it is it's a season and, uh, and, and God, what are you trying to teach me through this? How can I grow from it and, uh, be, be a better, more effective, more empathetic leader and human being. Mm. It's very insightful, very helpful. Um, I appreciate you opening up and talking about that. You know what I find really interesting about you and I hope you don't mind me saying this. What I find very interesting about you is for a guy that is, um, um, at his own, at his own, uh, admittance, uh, an introvert, somewhat of a guarded individual, there is a disciplined transparency and, and self-disclosure to you that makes you so approachable and um, and causes, I think, causes me and I assume others to, to, trust, to trust your leadership for that reason because everything that you – not everything – these, the way you're wired, you push against that in a holy way. And what it does is it puts you on the plane of, you know what? You're a guy that's wrestling with your own stuff and you're letting me get to see it. And I appreciate that so much. And I want you to know I appreciate that about you. Thank you for doing that. Oh. That's very good. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for saying that. No trouble. No trouble. If you want to hear Aaron Brockett's preaching style at work, go to the Traders Point website. That's tpcc.org. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, great. We appreciate you listening. But more importantly than that, please share this podcast. There are hundreds of thousands of preachers out there that need to be encouraged. If you are preaching this weekend, then know that we are pulling for you. We are thinking about you. So do your thing. We are making a difference. So keep it up. Until next time, so long.